Thank you. Please be seated. I know that uh, soon my picture will be up there, Mrs. Neese. Soon, but not yet. Today is Senior Adult Day, so because it's Senior Adult Day, we're going to deal with a very awesome subject as we start off this study about death. Just kidding, but it is kind of a funny story about death. Let me read it to you. An elderly man lay dying in his bed. In death's agony, he suddenly smelled the aroma of his favorite chocolate chip cookies waffling up the stairs. He gathered his remaining strength and he lifted himself from the bed. Leaning against the wall, he slowly made his way out of the bedroom and with even greater effort forced himself down to the stairs, gripping the railing with both hands. With labored breath, he leaned against the doorframe, gazing into the kitchen. When it, were it not for death's agony, he would have thought himself already in heaven's door. There, spread out upon newspapers on the kitchen table, were literally hundreds of his favorite chocolate chip cookies. Was it heaven, he thought, or was it one final act of heroic love from his devoted wife seeing to it that he left this world a happy man? Mustering one great final effort, he threw himself toward the table, landing on his knees in a rumpled posture. He parched his lips open. The wondrous taste of the cookie was already in his mouth, seemingly bringing him back to life. The aged and withered hand, shaking profusely, made its way toward the kitchen edge of the table when it was suddenly smacked with a spatula by his wife. Stay out of those, she said, therefore the funeral. Should be on marriage, right? Therefore, the funeral. She was already planning his funeral. Think about that for a minute. Yeah. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but just a couple of blocks north of us, a church last Easter had a memorial service. A memorial service for a church, for a church had died and had gotten to the point where they no longer could keep the doors open and they would have to vacate the building and scatter to other churches. Statistics say that 3,500 to 4,000 churches this year alone in 2015 will have their last service because they have literally died physically to the point where they can no longer keep their doors open. I know if you've ventured around the inner city of Wichita very much lately, but you'll find that there are several churches within several mile radius of the downtown area inside, not far from where we are, whose churches are for sale because the members no longer attend and the church is now on the market for anyone who would purchase it. As I read last, a couple of weeks ago, the reason that was given for the church dying just on the same street as ours, just a few blocks north of us, I did not hear one ounce of anyone saying that they were responsible. There was no one claiming responsibility for the death of the church. They gave a lot of reasons, but no responsibility was taken. And so I wondered as I read the article and as I put this before the church staff on Monday morning and as we talked about it among the pastors here at our church, as we sat around a breakfast table sharing a meal, 
What is to prevent Emmanuel Baptist Church from having the same fate as many churches inside of the city limits of Wichita? For if we are not careful, we will follow the same fate as many other churches inside the inner city of Wichita, and we will eventually not be able to afford this building. We will be forced literally because of the mass acreage of this facility to no longer be able to support it and enforce to move somewhere else and put our church on the market for the highest bidder to take or maybe the lowest bidder. I didn't see any responsibility in that article. And I'm convinced that the responsibility literally doesn't lie just with the pastoral leadership or maybe in the denominational leadership. I'm convinced the, the responsibility should be taken not just with the leadership, but also with those who are in the pews or those who are members of those churches. For the responsibility that God gave the church through Christ is a responsibility to every believer, every disciple, every member of the body of Christ. It is our responsibility to go. We have a responsibility as members of the body of Christ to answer the call of Jesus and to go out and to labor in the harvest that he already has. As he said, it's widened the harvest. It is ready for the picking. And yet there are very few laborers out in the field harvesting what God has prepared. We saw last week as we have been challenged by this passage in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38, where Jesus then began this series of studies for us to answer the call of Christ to labor in the field. And he said to us in that text, through the penmanship of the gospel of Matthew, that he himself was committed to go. He went everywhere compelling and reaching people with a gospel of his own message about him being the Savior. Anyone, anywhere, at any time, he was seeking to reach them with a gospel message. He was committed to the primary task of preaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. Why would he do such a thing? Because of the compassion that he had upon the crowd that he saw. We studied last week how the crowd, as he saw them, he saw them in a spiritual plight that was in desperate need of the gospel message of Jesus. They were harassed by sin and by Satan. They were helpless in their own condition to do anything about that condition, to change their plight. And because they were helpless, they needed a messenger, but they were without hope because no one was there declaring and proclaiming the truth, the way, and the life found through Christ. He and he alone came as that messenger. And up until now, he and he alone has been working in the field, harvesting what God has already prepared for the harvest. He's by himself, engaged in ministry, engaged in the proclamation of the message of, of the gospel and out ministering to the people. And now it is time in Matthew 10 for him to say to those disciples who are watching, it is now time for you to be engaged in the process of harvesting the harvest that God has for us to reap. He's compelling them and inviting them to join him in the labor force out in the harvest. And so I want to take a look at the text and how we might answer the call. But before we do, I want to go very quickly to the text in question in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And I want us to see sort of the biblical prefaces as we build up our argument to come to the applications at the end of our study. So hang on, buckle your belt. Here we go. Number one, Jesus chose his disciples. It is Jesus who chose his disciples. 
We see in the text in verse one, in the opening phrase of that first sentence, and he called to him his 12 disciples. And he called to him his 12 disciples. Look at the, the last three words of that phrase. He called to himself or to him his 12 disciples. His 12 disciples. Who were these disciples? They were his That says to me that they were possessed by Christ. They belonged to him. They belonged to no one else. They were his. God had granted them. God had given them to him. He belonged to them and they belonged to him. They were a part of him. He owned them. He was theirs as well as they were his. It's a two-way street and they are his disciples. We are disciples of none other than Jesus, and when we place our faith and trust in God, we are his and he is ours. But we must never forget that he owns us. He possesses us, and he has the right to dictate and determine then how we follow, where we follow, and what we do as we go along the way. They are his, that's possession. But notice the plan, the plan was to use 12. Find that interesting, and there are very reason, various reasons that many give for him selecting 12. We're not going to go in the context of all of that, but he chose 12 very specific men. We're going to read the list as, as it was read to us just a while ago by Pastor Andy, that they are very different men. They're 12. They're different. They're distinct. They're individuals, and, and they have different hang-ups and different weaknesses and different strengths. They come from Similar, sometimes various backgrounds. One's a tax collector and one's several are fishermen. We know very little about some of the other 12, but we know that there are various men individually selected by God the Father, and Jesus called them, and he called them unto himself to be a part of the inner circle, to not only the disciple circle, but the apostle circle. There were 12 of them. There were 12. No more, no less than 12. Why? Because that was the plan that God would use as Jesus would pour into their lives, and he would leave them with the opportunity after his ascension, to spread the gospel around the world. Just 12. So there were 12. That's the plan. But I want you to notice the purpose was the purpose of discipleship. Notice as he chose these men, these 12, they were chosen, first of all, to be disciples, to be followers of Christ. In the choosing, they were chosen to follow Jesus, none other but him. In other words, he was the great teacher. They were then to listen, they were to study, they were to observe, they were to absorb what he was teaching and what he was practicing so that in seeing and knowing and understanding what he was doing, they were then to emulate, they were then to follow that example. They were chosen by him as disciples, as followers of Jesus. And the question comes up, how did Jesus choose these 12? You ever wondered that? Well, let me give you a little bit of, of, of a background, I think, and some other passages as we learn how Jesus actually selected these disciples. Turn to Luke chapter 6. Turn to Luke chapter 6 very quickly. I want to take a look at Luke 6 verse 12. Just hold it there. Now, how many of you have studied experiencing God? Raise your hand real high. Let me see. Experiencing God. 
Uh, our chairman of deacons has taught that numerous times in Discipleship University, and, and I love Brother David for doing that. And there's some principles in there that, that are, are key to understanding how Jesus operated, because if we were to be followers of Christ, we were to follow in his example and do as he did. And in John chapter 5, we learn that, that Jesus went around doing what the Father was doing. In other words, he walked through, he made his journey, he, he made his way through all the cities and all the towns and all the villages and, and in all the backcountry roads. As he was making his journey, he was in the process of connecting with God on an intimate level, and he was then making his journey, and he was looking to see where God was at work And as he saw, as God revealed to Jesus where he was working and what he was doing, Jesus says in John 5 that all he did was simply join God in what God was already doing. Jesus joined God in what God was already doing. He didn't just initiate on his own. God directed him. God showed him. He revealed to him what he was doing. He invited him to join him. And as Jesus stepped into what God was doing, then God used Jesus to accomplish the further work that he wanted to do in and through his son, Jesus. So how did Jesus, in that process, how did he select the disciples? Notice the passage in Luke 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And, notice, when day came, he, Jesus, called his 12, his disciples, the 12 disciples, and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. What's the process? Jesus first prayed. He spent time praying. And as he was praying, he was connecting with God. And in that intimate, personal time alone with the Father, the Son then went about in connection with the Father, then watched what God was doing. God revealed what he was doing, invited Jesus to join him, and as Jesus made his way into that, God then released his authority and things happened. That's how God chose the disciples. And I'm convinced that's how God chose you and me. You see, God was already at work in our lives when the Good Shepherd came after us and called us unto himself and invited us through conversion to follow him as a disciple. He chose you, he chose me as he chose them because the Father was at work in our lives calling us to be his disciples. Jesus chose his disciples. Number two, Jesus called them to go. He called them to go. After he chose them, he called them. He called them to go. Notice the first phrase now in verse 1, and he called to him. He called to him is one word in the original language. He called to him. He called to him. And he called to him. And goes back to the first few verses that he spoke in the last comment that he made in Matthew 9. Remember he said, pray earnestly, Lord of the harvest. To send out laborers into the field, right? Remember, there's a need for laborers because the harvest is ready. God has made it ready, and there's a desperate need for laborers to go out into the field. And after that statement, and here's the solution. Jesus is about to give the solution to the prayer. He's saying we need to pray, but 
in order to solve the problem that we described last week, here's what I plan to do. I plan to use my disciples to go out into the harvest, to be laborers in that harvest, to collect the harvest that God has already prepared for that harvest. So the solution is here, and he called unto himself. Notice the summons here. Jesus is saying, hey guys, I need a face-to-face. I want to call you out of this crowd, and I want to spend some time alone with you in an intimate, personal time in which I'm going to instruct you in order for you to be prepared for me in order to send you out into the harvest that God has made ready. We should never send anybody into a harvest field out there unless we've made them ready for that. We should equip them, and that's really basically the responsibility of the pastoral role of the church is to equip the saints for ministry. See, the pastors aren't the only ones responsible for ministry. It's all of us. My responsibility and our responsibility as pastors is not only to be engaged in ministry, but the Bible says to equip the saints for the purpose of ministry. In other words, to equip us together, to go out together into the harvest that God has made ready. He's called them to go. We see in verse 2 where Jesus references them to the penmanship of Matthew as apostles. What is an apostle? An apostle is simply one who, who has moved from discipleship to apostleship. An apostle simply means one who goes out and represents someone else. They then now are being called into this intimate love relationship with God to be trained, to be instructed, to be equipped, to go out and be his representative in a very hostile world that is desperately in need of the gospel message of Jesus. And so now he calls them out as disciples and then as apostles. Just just listen to Matthew 10, verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, and after the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. He's sending them out. You see, he called these 12 unto himself in order to send them out. He's calling them to go. Did Jesus not in Matthew 28 say to those who were there, go therefore and make disciples to go? He's telling them to go, leave where they are and to go out into the harvest field, the mission field where God has prepared already the harvest. I think sometimes we have a tendency as a church to think that God has called us to sit, soak, and sour and even sing praises to him and there's very, very little going. There's very little going. We're not going. We're content to sit and to study uh, the blessings and the riches that are found in the Word of God for, for, the, for the edification of our souls and the strengthening of our faith and, and all of those wonderful fellowship moments and times that we have in community. L- let me ask you something. If there was a farmer, I'm going to pick on you again, Brother Denny. If you knew a farmer who said, I'm a farmer, but never sowed any seed and never had a harvest, would he be a farmer? Why not? He's a farmer. What do farmers do? Could they be a farmer if they never have planted a seed and never had a harvest? What kind of Christian would then claim to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, and have never, ever ever had any part in the harvest. What kind of claim is that? 
And I'm convinced one of these days we're going to stand in that great cloud of witness with, you know, right here. A few of the choir won't be there, Miss Niece. But we're going to stand in that great cloud of witness on Judgment Day, and we're going to look out down there on Judgment Day, and we're going to see our neighbors, family members, co-workers. We knew them. And they were ripe for the picking. God's been actively working in their lives. But there's no labor. There's a harvest field out there that God is actively right now working in people's lives. People that you know right now. I I was talking to, where's our missionary from Brazil? Stand up. I have a missionary from Brazil right here. Okay, He was telling me. Thank you. Please be seated. He's, he's here for a couple of days. Um, and, and he was telling me about, he got on, he, God rerouted his plane. And he only got about $800 of the free flight. But he got on a bus after spending the night in a hotel to get on a, a plane that had been rerouted. And a guy was complaining about the funeral they'd just been in. And God gave him a wonderful opportunity to witness to this family on the bus. Okay, God's at work there. Not in this family, but in the bus driver who heard the conversation. And when they got off, he told me this morning, the bus driver said, you got a minute? He said, yeah, I got time. And he led him to Jesus. God was at work there. God's at work, people. And he has called us into a harvest. Our eyes are shut, our ears are closed, and our hands are tied simply because of a lack of involvement. We must get ready. I'm convinced the harvest is already out there. And yet there are no laborers. And he's calling us to go. So Jesus not only chose them and he called them, but notice he consigned to them, he gave them his authority. I think one of the main reasons why we don't step up and we don't initiate, we don't engage, is because we're just flat out afraid. We're afraid. But notice Notice what it is. He gives them his authority. People, we don't go in on our own strength. We don't speak in and of ourselves. We speak led by him, guided by him, empowered by him to do the work for him. Notice he consigned his power. The third phrase, second phrase in verse one, and gave them authority, and gave them authority. Notice it says, and he called to him his 12 And he gave them his authority. And he gave them authority. And is the reason why he gave the gift. Why did he give the gift? Because they could not fulfill the function of a laborer in and of their own strength. They need supernatural strength. And the reason he gave them strength is because now they can operate outside of their own power, outside of their own wisdom in his. And he Jesus gave. Notice not only the reason, but notice the release. He released his authority. He gave it to them. He released it. You now have my authority to go. Wouldn't it be great in a disciple back then to know that as you were leaving, being sent by Jesus, that you had the same authority that he had? Do you think that'd give you some confidence? Well, I'm convinced the same authority they had is the same authority we have. We've been given authority. Given authority directly from Christ himself. 
He gave us exactly what he gave them. He releases his divine power. And notice, he gave them. Who received his power? All 12. All 12 received his power. He gave them all 12. He didn't give Simon Peter some and, and, and John some and just said, hey, the rest of you don't need it. He gave every one of them the same amount of power. They all received power. Guess what? I have the power, the same power you have. He's released the same power to all of us to go out and to do the work of the evangelist. God has given us his authority. Each and every one of us has the same amount of authority. No one has more and no one has less. So the question is, why aren't you using it? He gave them authority. What is authority? You think a police officer has authority when they pull you over? Try not stopping. What happens? You're going to lose your rights. They have an authority backed up by the government. We have an authority backed up by Jesus himself through the enablement and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit granted to us by God the Father. We now possess all of the authority of God at work in us and through us as we go into the harvest field. So what I'd like to say is this whole matter of authority is about responsibility. This is what I want to say. It's about responsibility because there are a lot of people who claim to have authority, but they don't use it responsibly. What's responsible authority? What's the big thing going on between the police and the community now? They're using their authority wrongly. That's the accusation, right? They're not upset that they have authority. They're just not using that authority, right? Is it possible to be a believer and have authority from God and not, not use it responsibly? What's responsible authority? How did Jesus use his authority? We've already said, John 5, he was praying to the Father he communicated and connected with him on an intimate, personal level. And he went down through the streets of Capernaum and the other cities of Jerusalem and, and throughout all of the region of Galilee and all that area. He just didn't do what he wanted to do. He saw what God was doing and he joined what God was doing, right? And when he did that, he engaged the authority that God gave him. And that authority that God gave him, joining God in what God was doing, then released the divine power of God to accomplish amazing things. We have a responsibility, yes, to use the authority, but to use the authority that we have rightly to connect intimately and personally with Jesus himself through the Father. And as we do, we then walk through life, we journey through life on a day-to-day -day basis, observing where God is at work, letting God show us where he's at work, inviting us to join him. And then as we do, he releases that authority through us and we see amazing things take place. In Luke chapter... Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 17, we have an instance where Jesus is in the Mount of Transfiguration, the early part of the chapter, and then you get down to the middle of Matthew 17, and Jesus enters into a discussion where he's having a discussion, he's seeing a discussion between the disciples and this man who has brought his son who's possessed of a demon, and the disciples couldn't cast him out. Notice what happens in Matthew 17. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. The disciples could not heal him. Have you ever wondered why? They couldn't heal him. 
I can show you verse after verse where they've cast out demons many times before this as he sent them out. But on this occasion, they couldn't cast out the demon. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And the disciples came to Jesus privately. Why privately? Think they're embarrassed? Why couldn't we do it? We tried, but we couldn't do it. And the disciples came to him privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he says to his disciples, to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. Does that nothing impossible for you just a blanket check to, so that we can just do anything that we choose to do, that nothing that we decide to do is impossible? Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying nothing is impossible to you and where God is not in operation at work and that as you are joining God? And the disciples, you know, there's a passage where it says that the reason why they couldn't cast him out was because of a lack of, what's the word? Yeah, but prayer a lack of prayer, a lack of prayer, a lack of connectivity, a lack of connectivity. They were, there was a lack of prayer. They had not been communicating, connecting with God in prayer. You see, before you can engage and before you can become involved and before God can use you and you can exercise the authority that you have, it's important to connect through prayer. Because if I'm not in tune with God, how am I going to know what God is up to? How can I hear what God is inviting me to do and how he's inviting me to join him? How am I able then to exercise the authority that he's entrusted to me? If I'm just out here doing whatever I want to do, uh, Gail was telling me about, we were talking about, he, he watched a robin in his backyard the other day, just kicking up dust and finding nothing to eat. A lot of effort and a lot of energy with zero results. An individual can have a lot of effort and a lot of energy with zero results. A church can have a lot of activity and, and, a, and generate a lot of dust with zero results. Why is that? We've been given authority, so why isn't it happening? Could it be because we're not joining God in what God is doing? We're trying to force it and make it on our own. Well, he consigned his authority to his disciples, but fourthly, he classified the mission. Notice the text in verse, the last part of verse 1. And gave them authority, notice, over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Through divine inspiration, Matthew is connecting this passage with what Jesus has just said in Matthew chapter 9, I'm convinced, where he said, you know, 
the, the reason why there's not a great harvest is because there are not enough laborers into the harvest. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to tap into the labor force and he's calling these 12 disciples now into the labor force. Up until now, Jesus has been operating solely by himself. He's been the only one in the field. He's, only, he's been the only one that's been in the harvest. And now he's including these 12 to do that. And what he's doing as he's sending them out is he's well aware of the reality that as he sends them out, he's sending them out into a hostile world. We're going to look at that next week. It's a hostile world. There is an enemy out there. And the fact is that the same enemy that was against him is the same enemy that's going to come against them. There are going to be unclean spirits that are going to come against them and, and work their way against them and try to prevent what God wants to do. There's a, a force there that's at work and they're going to be, be in the battle. They're going to be in the fight and there's going to be a struggle. And they're going to, the, that word cast out seemed to indicate that it's going to require force. A force. There's going to be a struggle, a battle against Satan and against what Christ wants to do through his disciples. And so he's telling them that by faith then, they're going to be able to do what Jesus did. Where they, they're going to be able, as they follow him, are going to be able to see incredible, miraculous freedoms and in that they are going to set captives free. Remember why Jesus was feeling compassion for the people? They were harassed by Satan and by sin. They were helpless to do anything about their condition. And they were hopeless because there was no one there to deliver the message. And so he's going to send them out into this battlefield to set captives free, physically and spiritually, for the glory of God. And he classifies that mission, and his, their mission is our mission, is to go out into a, a hostile world. It is, it is a hostile world, and it's becoming more and more hostile. It is. And, and, and there's going to come a time, I'm convinced, that the church is going to be under greater scrutiny and greater persecution. With some of the legislation that the Supreme Court is considering today, that more than likely some of us who are churches who don't embrace some of the social norms that are about to be handed down from the, from the government, if we don't embrace some of the social norms, they're saying we must, we could lose our tax exemption. That's only the beginning of the end. I could have a commercial for my discipleship class, but we're over now, aren't we, Mike? The end is coming. And the closer we get to the end, the more hostile the field that we're in is going to become. But he classified our mission. What is our mission? Is our mission politics? Is our mission to protect and to guard the social norms of our society and to, and, and to force people who, who, who are not who are not redeemed, who are not regenerate by the Holy Spirit of God, who have no conversion experience to live like we live. They live the way they live because they are degenerate, because they're lost. They are, they are born depraved. And the only solution, the only salvation they have is the gospel. That's it. The gospel changes everything. It changed everything in your life. It changed everything in my life. It not only affects my eternal salvation, but it affects the way that I live. And our mission and our message is the gospel. 
And the more we declare it and the louder we proclaim it, the more God uses it as we sow the seed of the gospel of Jesus and he alone, who is the Lord of the harvest, will reap the harvest in his time. We're going to look at that passage in a minute. But lastly, let's look at the combined efforts that he gives. It's interesting in this text, in verse 2, he combines their efforts And the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, son of the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I wish we had time to talk about each and every one of these guys one-on-one, but we don't. But how many times is the word and used there? Come on, somebody look at it. How How many ands are there? I even bolded them for you. How many of you say four? How many say five? All right, how many say seven? How many say six? I think there's six. Anybody want to correct me? After the service, you're welcome to do that. Why would he put these guys in pairs of two? Why would he put them in pairs of two? Because no one should go out into the harvest field alone. He doesn't want to send his disciples alone into the harvest field. If you take a look at the text, and just let me read to you Mark 6, 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. In Luke 10, 1 through 4, and after the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out ahead of him, two by two in every town and place where he himself is about to go. 72 divided by two is how many? How many? 36 teams of two. Jesus never sent his disciples out in the harvest field alone. Why? It's a hostile place. They're in need of of relationship. They're in need of accountability. They're in need of protection. And he sends his disciples out two by two into the harvest field that is ripe and ready for the harvest. I'm going to encourage you. While there may be times you may have to witness one-on-one or by yourself, I think the best strategy that, that, that we could ever have is two by two. We need each other. You need someone else to encourage you, to stand with you, to watch over you. And if you don't have a relationship like that, I encourage you to find one. And notice they combined their efforts two by two, and they went out one by one. The last verse I want to look at is Mark chapter 4. And I'm going to read this, and we're going to come to the close at our application. Mark 4, 26. Notice the harvest is mentioned again. And he, Jesus, said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and it grows. He's talking about a servant, and the servant is sowing the seed And the seed is the gospel of Jesus. There's a man who's out in a field, and he's sowing the seed of the gospel. And as he sows the seed of the gospel, it sprouts. It takes root. It begins to grow. All right? Now notice, he knows not how. 
You read that? He knows not how. How does it happen? He doesn't know, but he knows who did it. He doesn't know how it's done, but he knows who's doing it. Who's doing it? The sovereign Lord of the harvest. We've talked about who's Lord of the harvest. The Lord. He's the one who yields the harvest. The farmer tills the ground, plants the seed, and may, if he's possible, water. Or maybe just by faith, depending on when God's going to water it. I've seen them up in West Texas, Brother Danny, where they have those big combine, you know, those water things. You don't have one of those, do you? So you're a, you're a farmer by faith, just depending upon the Lord. And he is the Lord of the harvest. He knows not how. The sovereign Lord of lords does. Verse 28, and the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of the ear, in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once, notice what he does. He puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Somebody's got to go out and reap the harvest, or it just sits out there. I'm convinced that God's prepared a harvest for you. Where you work, where you live, where you recreate, where your kids hang out, on that ball field, everywhere, God is at work. And he's waiting on you to join him in the harvest field as his laborer. So how do we do that? Very quickly. You're going to have to write quick. To answer the call, I must receive a call. I must respond to the call. I must rely on his authority. I must responsibly engage and reach for assistance. Receiving the call. The call first is a call of discipleship to place your faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord, and to become a disciple. You cannot, you cannot be a laborer until you first know who hires you. And you're only hired through a personal, intimate love relationship with God the Father through faith in his Son. And once you become a disciple, he calls you then to go on into the harvest field. And we must respond to that call. For the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. And as we go, we don't rely upon our own authority. We rely upon his authority. As responsibly as we can, we engage as he calls us to engage. God will rightly give us opportunities. And when he does, we step forward by faith and we are his instruments and his vessels, his mouthpiece, and we engage the community around us. God, I'm praying, and some of you have already this week have decided, have, have learned this, that God has is, is got a harvest out there that is ripe, that's ready for the picking, and he wants to engage you into that harvest. And you may think, well, I, I'm unworthy. You may think, well, he can't really use me. You know, I'm conv- I, I want to know how many of those 12 guys that were called felt worthy. Mark and I were talking about this, and he said, uh, God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the call. God doesn't call the qualified because you're not qualified. He qualifies those he calls. And he will qualify you. He will use you. He will speak through you. And if you don't know what to say, he will say it through you. If you are Connecting with him, walking in him, filled with him, you can be used by him. 
anybody in this room and everybody in this room he wants to use. Whose responsibility is it to engage? All of ours. As we reach for the assistance can only come through his divine guidance. Let's pray. Song inside.